Welcome to another episode of Build Up One Another. This is where I interview accomplished men and women who know that to go far, we go with one another. My guests go deep in sharing the practical and unexpected ways of nurturing your allies and navigating your adversaries. Join me as we unpack the stories behind our key relationships with one another and how these impact where we go and who we become. I'm your host, Karen Temple. At first blush, our guest today is an unassuming professional, but scratch just below the surface and what emerges is a driven entrepreneur who realized early in her career that she wouldn't be happy until she was running her own business. Fast forward to today, Lucy La Grasa has been the captain of her domain, building and running businesses for over 30 years. Lucy is the former president of Formidable Technologies that helps transition companies to leading edge cloud computing technologies. She is also the former senior vice president of Whale Feather, where she led indigenous economic education and housing projects. More recently, Lucy co-founded Museo La Grasa, a training, consulting, and advisory form. There, as senior partner, she realized she specializes in leadership, developing business cases, and reputation management. Lucy's actions have always spoken directly to her principles in serving and leading with integrity. Today, we are traveling back in time to 1989, when Lucy, early in her career, started her first venture when she founded Storybook Publishing. She later developed this into the PRISM Awards, renowned for training and mentoring aspiring youngsters aged 7 to 14 to become professional writers. Lucy, welcome to Build Up One Another. So what compelled you to start Storybook Publishing? I think at first I really didn't think about opening my own business because I understood the commitment that it required. So I had to really, it was something I had to really think about because I had a family, I had young children um, and I had a wonderful career. I was working for the government. I was, you know, uh, I had a job that I loved, uh, but I always felt constrained, um, innovative, creative. I always felt that I couldn't go beyond what the structure allowed me to do. And um, talking about people building people up, uh, there was a, a deputy minister who said to me one day, he said, Lucy, is this what you really want to do? And I was very confused by the question. Um, but he knew me well and uh, could see that, you know, I was becoming the go-to person whenever there was a difficulty uh, in the ministry. And um, I really didn't understand the skill that that took in order to be able to solve things understand what to do in any kind of circumstance. So he asked me the question, and I really think he helped me see, just by asking the question, helped me see that I should be doing something else. And then I decided that I would open my own business. And I did that with two other people. Um, all three of us really thought we should be doing something else. And I was really overjoyed that I would be doing it by myself. That takes some of the fear away when you're thinking about venturing out on your own. I think the three of us decided that we wanted to start a business and all three of us were creative. Um, we were all in communications, uh, all have very different roles. One person was an excellent administrator. One person was uh, uh, basically a producer and a, a coordinator of production materials. And I was very strategic in communications and a writer. Um, so what, what ended up happening is that we decided we were gonna sit down and do a business plan. We just thought, okay, let's, let's all think about what is it that we wanna do. And we wanted to make a difference. I think we had to come up with our purpose first. What is our purpose? Why are we doing this? I mean, we could just as easily stay here if we didn't have a purpose. So we decided that what we wanted to do was um, change the writing industry because we were all aware that great writers are often insecure hmm. because if you want to be a great dancer you can take dancing lessons when you're young if you want to be an artist you can take art lessons when you're young but if you want to become a professional writer where do you take professional writing classes when you're seven eight nine ten and that's actually when you're highly creative very communicative and you actually 
you actually have a sense that that's what you want to be. Um, we also knew that to become a great writer, you need to source original thought. Um, it's not just about being able to write well. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we separated out, and we did this collectively, we separated out the skills that were trainable and the skills that weren't trainable. And we hmm. decided we need to source the young people who have an interest in becoming professional writers. Um, and then we have to figure out a program that um, we didn't want to do the selecting. We wanted to create a little microcosm of society to do the selecting. Because um, we also wanted to make a difference in how people viewed young people. So a lot of the changes that we see now, we help drive. You know, YTV didn't exist then. All kinds right. of things what, that we see. What now. years um, was this that you started out? It was 1989 when we started. 1989. What was the company called? At first, it was called Storybook Publishing. Storybook Publishing. Yes, very simple name. I like that. And then it moved into the Kids Network. The Kids Network, uh, we, we really wanted people to understand these books were written by children for children. Um, and, and when you say children, how young were these kids? Seven to 14. Seven to 14? Yes. That is yeah. brilliant. And one of our first books was written by a seven-year-old. Amazing. So I just want to go back a bit because you described you and your two other partners coming around and really charting out the why, asking yourselves, why are you doing this? And flushing out the purpose behind this business. Drive a lot of clarity around your vision of what you wanted to do to the point where you had a fairly linear plan. Okay, we have to do X, Y, and Z. Or was there still a large um, component of that which was unknown? I think we had to figure everything out because it, it was a new niche in the marketplace. Um, nobody had thought about it before. But what I kept seeing were adults who were great writers and when their work was criticized would just they'd fall to pieces. And I, and, and I kept thinking, we have to change this. People need to know it's not that subjective. So we also wanted to know if there really was a need in the marketplace. We're very practical people, um, creative but practical. So we tested it out and we designed, there was no internet, so we had to do everything manually. We designed the program, we worked it through, we had our business plan, we did all of this stuff. And we had certain milestones that we um, designed. This is either gonna work or it's not gonna work. One was how would the school system, would libraries, with different associations, actually buy into this program okay so they did and um we ran it for what we thought was a, a you know reasonable amount of time and uh before they had to submit their manuscripts and we ended up with ten thousand manuscripts so so just to unpack it a little bit you decided to partner with the school systems who are teaching these young people how to write in reaching out into to the school systems to find those writers Yes, and it was very structured. We knew, like with anything, we designed a structure. Um, we had about five or six subjects because we were trying to find different types of writers. And um, we gave, under each subject, say for instance, one was nonfiction, we would describe what they would need to achieve with their story. So they had some guidance. Mm. Um, and then the teacher, if she was teaching nonfiction, could help people to understand, help the young children understand what nonfiction is and why you develop an interest in nonfiction. I'm just using that as, as an example. Um, so they had all the tools they needed in the classroom to make it as simple as they could and as enjoyable as they could. So everybody had the same kind of purpose. You could turn it into a lesson. Um, and so when they submitted it, what was interesting uh, for a lot of people when this program was designed, is that it wasn't necessarily the best writers that would win. It was the people that could source really innovative ideas that were selected by um, the judges. We had anywhere from 20 to 40, 50 judges a year, depending on how many manuscripts we had, which was a huge logistical thing we had to deal with. Um, the, the key for us was, um, once they were selected, is that then they needed to be mentored. And they okay. needed to work with professional writers who would walk them through characterization, walk them through each, each of the steps. So there was a structure that they had that they work one-on-one -on -one with them until they achieved a professional level. 
and, um, and we could only train so many. I mean, I would love to do that with you know a bunch of people, but we could only do it with so many. We wanted to. Uh, so talking about building people up, it's yeah. about doesn't matter what age you are. If this is a passion that you have and this is something you want to do, um, being able to be mentored or coached or helped. Right. Um, it's, it's self-exploratory. You discover whether this is what you really want to do or this is not what you want to do. It's like way too much work or it's, oh my God, this is just so exciting. Right. You, and part of it is just exploring that, whether you're, you know, 10, 20, 50 or 70. So, yeah. And it reminds me of that entrepreneurial spirit where you have an idea, you have a, you have a passion and you start doing your MVP. And what I love about your story is how you had, you had this compelling vision of what you wanted to do along with your other partners. And as you say, this is pre-internet. Um, this is when the publishing com companies are very entrenched in how they're able to source and market and the channels to the end consumers, the readers, was so established. What I love about your story is that you're actually curating what the, what the internet could do now but you're doing it back in the day where you didn't have that infrastructure. So going to partnering with the school systems, finding these budding young creative kids, and then also being able to partner them with experienced writers. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges in bringing all those people together around your vision to create a shared vision? Well, I think we really, um, we were really concerned about equity at the very beginning of the, not equality, equity, mm -hmm. where we wanted to make sure that uh, it didn't just go to mainstream schools. It went to schools for, at that time, they were called schools for, uh, you know, the deaf or people who had hearing, um, hearing impairments or um, children who were in other, other places other than a standard school and indigenous children. So we made a concerted effort to do that so that everyone had the same opportunity to participate and um we had to go looking for them it, it's not like uh you know you go on the internet you're doing a search meaning of a of a program and you see that a lot more now with social purpose and all that it was something that people didn't make an effort to do and we really wanted to change that we really wanted to to um, level the playing field right from the beginning. Right. And so I'm seeing so, you were focused on the equity side, so the remuneration for the effort and the talent, and at the same time you're looking at the social side. Yes. It was, uh, you know, I had a young daughter then, and um, she asked me one day, she said, Mom, I don't understand what you do. Mom, explain what you do. So I gave her this, like, rambling 20-minute explanation, and she said, oh, she said, so you just help people understand kids have important things to say. I went, oh my God. Okay. You, you, <laughs> you hit the nail on the much, head. You said that so much more succinctly than I could say it. I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, but she just... Did she turn around and use that? Because now whenever she has something important to say, <laughs> she, she said, hey, mom, you got to be true to your business. This is important what I'm saying. Oh, you know, she was always like that, and I think she was a real incentive for me to do it. Both my children were, were incentives for me to run this program because they were, you know, active, bright, encouraging. They also worked in the business, too, so they, they understand business, um, you know, even as adults. That's, that's just part of their DNA, too. Uh, so going back to working with all of these different kinds of groups, was it difficult or was it a lot to coordinate? I don't think so. Not for me, because I love logistics. It's like a puzzle. I mean, I can be highly creative, but at the same time, I'm a very good administrator. Um, and I love organizational development. Right. I love designing new and different ways to do things. And I like pushing the envelope and you know, organizational structure. Um, I like flatlining organizations rather mm. than hierarchical organizations. I like letting people be multipliers. I don't like diminishing people's work. Um, I love collaboration. If somebody can think of a better way to do something, just tell me because exactly. thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you. I can't figure this all out myself. When I started the PRISM Awards, I decided that that part of the company should be not-for-profit because it's the program. It's being run all over. It was an expensive program to run. And I thought, okay, we have to support this program. So I went to... Uh, 
you know, a well-known not-for-profit lawyer in the city, and he was, I was talking about what I wanted to achieve, and he said, uh, he said to me, he said, Lucy, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. He said, do not make this not-for-profit. He said, you have a, a lot of integrity in this program, and you want to maintain that integrity. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you're making inroads into an industry that's a tough industry. Very tough. You... I mean, we forget these days, right? Because when we were setting up to do this podcast, you said, okay, you've got a a mic, you've got a computer. People can be creative. People can produce podcasts like we're doing here. We can type and release news articles and we're seeing where that's going today. The barrier to entry now has been really reduced down to pretty much nothing, which has good things and bad things about it. But back in this day, it wasn't that way. You, you were trying to create a movement of where kids' voices mattered and kids could speak to other kids. Yeah. So yeah. carry on with, with what this lawyer was saying because I'm curious. So, you know, I, I am coachable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I listened to what he said and yeah. I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to accept that responsibility. Um, so then I thought, okay, um, uh, why don't I try to get sponsored by a bank? a bank that wants to reach out to young people and understand that this this is an important cornerstone of our society. If you get people who have bank accounts when they're young, they'll understand how to manage money. That was also a concern I had that, you know, there was this myth that people who write don't know how to manage money or highly creative people don't know how to manage money. So part of my goal was that they would learn to manage money and that they would receive money at an early age and see that it was a legitimate career goal. Um, so Scotiabank decided to sponsor the program, Brilliant. even though it was not for profit, because they were vested in success of the program, and they would give the the five hundred dollar awards. At that time, that was a lot of money um, to each one of the young people. And the condition that we set was that they would have to have a half an hour lesson on how to manage money from the bank manager that was closest to where they lived before they were given the money. And then they would walk them through opening their account. And I was concerned that they'd be the only one that would have access to the money, but they would have to be responsible for that. Right. And so I'm just sitting here a little bit blown away and because I keep pinching myself and saying, this is all going down in 1989, right? Where even today, the school systems, um, I mean, they're changing, but I often, and looking at each individual child and saying, okay, well, who, who is that little soul in there? And what is it that they're budding to put out into this world? And to actually steer and create a movement within the education system, within our larger communities, to really bring out that creative spirit in kids, which is something that I think we're still trying to learn how to do better with every human being in our society. And then the other aspect that you started really going after was financial education, Mm -hmm. how to be good stewards of the money that we earn. Yes, because you don't have the freedom to write unless you have money to support what you're doing. And that's with every creative art, whether you want to be an artist or... Um, and it was really bothering me at the time that a lot of people had all this creative talent mm-hmm. and they um, had to be doing other jobs right. rather than expressing their talent. And if they were, what is it? Is some ridiculous number like 98% of people who, are, are, who commit to being creative live below the poverty line. I mean, that, my figure might not be right, but it's huge. Um, but that always disturbed me. And I, I think it's just... Uh, it still disturbs me. Right, right. And it, and it, and often I find, speaking with creatives, sometimes they feel that money contaminates the purity of the creative art. And even social enterprise businesses where they want to do good and they don't want to be for profit because they feel that that could stain the purity of their mission. But if I put my business hat on, I'm thinking that if you're providing value to society, whether it's through creating a piece of writing that people are enjoying reading, whether it's all the way through to whatever product or service you're putting out there, there needs to be an exchange of value for money there because unless you're able to bring profit into your enterprise and your creative endeavor, you're not able to spread that to all the people who could be enjoying it. 
I often think back to, for example, musicians. Well, if Aretha Franklin only sung in her home, all of us wouldn't be so blessed with having her voice in our homes. But it's through being able to wrap a creative endeavor in a business model that we're able to really build and scale and share that with the world. Because whatever is in that creative person, it needs to get out there. It needs to be multiplied and put out there in the world so that we can all benefit from it. Absolutely. I, you know. And hopefully we'll get there. And so as you built this, you, um, you said it, it was, did you keep it as a not-for-profit or did you move it into a for-profit type? How did no, that all whole, work? Um, I took the lawyer's advice and kept the entire company as a for-profit company. Yeah. Um, and we changed the business model. Because when I looked at how uh, publishing was operating and, you know, dependent on grants and all of these kinds of things, I just thought, this is not... This is not how you run a business. That was my own personal view. Um, so we we decided to um, look for other ways to sell our books. So the um, kids would kids would get the five hundred dollars stipend mm-hmm. from the sponsor. They would then create um, a book, a novel. Well, they would work with the with mentor. the mentor. Yeah, and then we. we there were a select number of books that we chose to publish. Okay. So it's really like having three divisions. It was the, the awards program, mm-hmm. it was the mentoring program, and then there was the publishing program. So at no point did we commit to any particular child that we were going to publish their book. Right. We really do that in publishing. Um, but it's, it's almost like a sports competition, right? Exactly. Where you learn by doing, and whether you end up only playing peewee hockey, or if you end up <laughs> going to OHL or NHL, it's all good because of what you're learning along the way. Exactly. exactly. That's a very good description. And so uh, there were a number of books that were published, and, and I really believe they should get royalties on the books that were published. Um, and so we did a series for Air Canada, and they were on all their domestic and international flights for a period of time. They also had a, a – um, Adrian Clarkson did a 40-minute documentary on our program. They followed us around for a year to really – look inside what we were doing and um, and for people listening can you just tell a little bit more who adrian clarkson is yes adrian clarkson um was a prominent interviewer with cbc for a number of years she also became um the governor general of canada and um just a wonderful woman and uh, when she interviewed me she asked me some really um tough questions and got me thinking about why i'm doing what i'm doing like all of her questions were around not just how, but you know, why, the why? Would, yeah, why would you do something like this in, in an industry that's tough? Like, why would you mortgage your house? Why would you, why would you do this? Um, and I think the answer I gave her at the time was when you're, when you've, you've been given a vision or you're compelled to do something, um, if you don't follow through with it, what kind of person are you? Like you, like if you have integrity, it's part of your integrity at that point. Um, mind you, you still have to think about it. You, you don't just run off into the distance and, um, you know, do a kind of airy-fairy, you, you know. Uh, so you, go, have to, you have to have a good business mind, too. Yeah, to, to it, it, you mentioned combining the creative with the practical, but I just want to go a bit deeper into that because what I think you said there was really profound. When you are compelled to do something, if you ignore that voice in your heart, then you're not being true to your purpose here. Can you explore that a little bit more? Well, I think um, I think what happened when we decided to go into business, and we uh, the three of us were talking about it, and we decided what our purpose was was to make a difference. You then start thinking about the things that you've observed, the things that matter to you, the things that you'd like to see changed. And I think also because I had children, there were things that I thought needed to be set right. And so then you look at what are your skills, what are your abilities, what were our skills and abilities as a team, and what could we do that would make a difference? Um, So when we were working out the business plan, very methodically, lots of logistics, we know what the budgets were going to be, we're all committed to it. Um, But we also did test it. We just didn't say, okay, we're going to run off in the distance we tested it and we needed like, you know, what you might call proof of 
you know, like a proof of concept, yeah, a pilot. Concept. Yeah, all of those kinds of words. We right. All, of those yeah. <laughs> all that's known yeah. so well today with the whole startup yeah. world you were doing back then. Yeah. So yeah. We just thought, you know what, we're all not going to quit our, our wonderful jobs, which we all loved. Okay, so wait a second here. So you kept your day jobs while you launched this? Yeah, while we were testing it out. So we were working night and day trying to, you know, do the plan, figure it out, testing it. Um, and it was only after we saw the need was as great as it was that we thought, okay, we need to do this. Not only was it something we wanted to do, then we recognized it was a need. And I think that pushed us into it by saying, if we don't do this, it's not going to get done because we know how to do this. Yeah. And, and being able to, um, do that at the same time. So I, I'm thinking back now, you've got your day job, you've got this budding, growing dream, you're also a mother with two lovely children. Um, you're this is full. This yeah, is really full. Yeah, he, he was Let's right not forget all the husbands in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did say he was forgotten. <laughs> the other day, I heard um, the ex CEO of PepsiCo, um, Indra Nuri, talk about when she was leading PepsiCo, yeah. and her list was was very long i mean there's pepsico there's the kids there's the in-laws there's the parents yeah. he says where am i on the list and she says oh well you're way down here and she says well i want to be further up on the list and he says well you she said well you should be glad you're even on the list at this point <laughs> but uh, yeah let's not forget all yeah. our husbands because yeah. they're often the ones uh showing up yeah. when there is an entrepreneurial wife or vice versa where there's uh, an entrepreneurial husband and actually, he pushed me into going into business, too. He just said to me, you're never going to be happy unless you run your own business. Right. And that was not what I wanted to hear. I thought, I have a wonderful life. Why do I have to take on all this extra responsibility of running a business? But he was right. I mean, I, I you know, it was like it was coming from every direction that this is what I should be doing. My kids wanted me home more. It just... So I just thought, okay, this will solve a number of things. I can have more control over my time. I'll be doing something that I love. Yes, it'll be difficult, but I'll do something that I love. And, and they were all right. That is what I'm suited to. So as you got to that line in the sand, so to speak, was there, um, did you become just less and less, did you have less and less fear or did you become just less and less um, clear on what that would look like? What caused you to sort of jump over that line? Do you remember? Um, I think there were a couple of things. One, I think we have to explore our own potential. And I think that's what people were saying to me. They're like, Lucy, you know, like you're happy, you're doing a wonderful job. But I think it was I had just become complacent because it was kind of effortless. And it really wasn't fulfilling, you know, in the traditional sense of being mm. fulfilling your own purpose. or Right. And feeling full, feeling, feeling full of yes. life and energy. Yes. And um, so the people closest to me or the people that were working with me could see that I was driven and that I, I could see so many things that weren't manifesting um, or commenting on things. People would say, well, you should go do that or whatever. And but, so these were co-workers, this was yeah, family, just, just people I think it observing. was like the world was converging <laughs> on me until I had to stop and pay attention. You know, there's nothing more important than paying attention to what people who love you say um, or people that care about you say because they're, you know, even if it's not something you want to hear, they're telling you because you need to hear it. And so well, I just, yeah, I just paused and I thought, okay, I just need to pause now. And really listen to what everyone's saying. And what is it that I want? And what is it that my children want? And, and you know, my husband was saying, I'll support you. It doesn't matter what it is. Until I told him it was publishing. He's like, do not pick something that's <laughs> <laughs> less difficult. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, he was always very supportive. Uh, but um, I think, too, for me, I was also modeling for my children. Mm. Um, that if you um, have a goal, you have a dream that you also have, you, you have to accept the responsibility that goes with that. It's not going to happen by itself. Right. So um, I think there were a lot of things that drove me to do it. And it wasn't just like, oh, I had an idea one day and I'm going to do it. No, I'm not that kind of person. Mm. I put a lot of thought into it. And then what pushed me over is it was the right thing to do for me. Mm -hmm. And I felt aligned with myself. 
Does that make sense? I felt aligned. I felt aligned with the people I was doing it with. I felt aligned once the business plan was done and I could really feel it was going to work and I knew it was going to work. Um, yeah. And I felt I had the support. I think, I think doing something without support is twice as hard if you don't have the support of people who care about you. Um, so I commend anyone that, you know, stands on their own, leads through all the stuff and still does it like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge. What I'm hearing is an exploratory period where an idea first comes in and it's in a sense, it kind of reminds me of the creative process where you have this little seed that somehow gets lodged in our heart and then people or the environment starts sprinkling a little water on that. And at first it's like, oh, there's a seed in there. What's going on there? And then we start exploring, well, what could that look like? Rather than it being just an unknown, starting to explore what that could look like, how it could shape. And then as we go forward in this fog, we start to feel and know what this looks like with greater clarity to the point where we can then take more deliberative actions to say, all right, I'm going to quit that day job and start on this venture. And I love how you did them both at the same time. I've heard more and more entrepreneurs who've taken that route. We hear in the, in the media often about the person who dropped out of school, started the company, it became a billion dollar market cap company. And, and those are the bright, shiny stories And we often forget that they're the very, very rare stories that in reality, most of us have life and family and bills to pay and relationships to manage. So just hearing your story about how you went from having this idea to now starting the idea. So I want to jump into the publishing because your husband said, could you not choose a more difficult (laughs) entrenched industry to go into to try to, you know, take down, if you will? And that's a tough one. So now you've got these creative young kids who've gone through this process and you're starting to zero in on, hey, we could publish some of these books. What did that look like? What did that part of your journey involve? Well, we had this idea. Um, I guess because we were, everything was new, we wanted to think differently. So we were thinking, okay, if we were if we were young and we wanted a pocketbook, like what's a modern pocketbook look like? A modern pocketbook would have to fit in the back of your jeans. If you're traveling on a plane or you're going to camp or you're on a school bus or whatever it is, you just, you're running around. Right. You want a book that's going to fit in your, your back pocket. And you want them to be shorter. You don't want them to be longer because you want more children to read. So, you know, and we also discovered just from reading the stories that young people were um, able to communicate much more complex ideas in a shorter period of time. I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm saying. It, it so. does actually. And I'm, you've really captured my imagination there because as adults, we overcomplicate pretty much everything in our life. And today when we have just so much data and noise coming at us, it feels as though our ability to just get practical and concrete with the world is, is being lost. So tell me more about these little beings who, <laughs> who, are, who are, have so much to teach us adults about getting they it really right. Do. They really do. So, you know, when they were mentored, they, they, you know, there was a lot of reflection because that was something they were trained to do, the reflection. But there's a lot of action. So can you imagine a lot of action with a lot of reflection together? Like you're just moving through a story. And a lot of humor because the way they see things is so much more entertaining. It is. Um, you know, it's not you know, deep and bad, let's say it's, yeah. it might be deep, but it's like, um, they take you on the same kind of journey and I don't like, but differently. And, uh, they're communicating differently to each other. So we wanted to, to give them a product that looked like what they would want to read. So we came up with a small pocket book that right. actually would fit in the back of their pockets. Um, you know, you see them now, but that was that was like a crazy idea to make a smaller pocketbook. And I was going to ask you, because I'm trying to remember back to my childhood and what books, and I, I love reading. Yeah. And I remember reading, and I don't know who published them, but they were like the Mr. Happy, the Mrs. Sunshine books. And when you talked about a little book that fits in your pocket, that's one that comes to mind. But then I also remember the Dr. Zeus, which was hardcovered and kind of big. Love those. 
And then there's this void in my memory. I just remember at that point moving on to either like a Judy Bloom or a Little House on the Prairie. And those are more substantive pocket books, but they're not, they don't fit in your pocket, yeah. even though they're called pocket books. So did anything exist at this time? Because now when we look at children's books, you see that it's a much more established industry. At least it feels that way where there's different types of books for different ages yeah, and whatnot. It's much more sophisticated now. These are more like, I think I call them novellas rather than novels or longer stories. But it's, um, they're like snack size. We kept seeing them as snacks, you know, like you could, you know, take half an hour to read. I mean, um, but that, that's, that's about the attention span yeah. of a kid that age, right? Yeah, and um, feel like you are being talked to or spoken with or they're being shared with and somebody else uh, of your same age. It's just yeah. a different way to feel, right? You know, everybody wants it, to say I'm out there. Uh, you know, I want to see myself out there. This is it was just very different. I mean. Um, we did that for about 12 years, and then after that, we were just exhausted. And it, and it was an expensive program to run. We were successful, but I think we accomplished what we set out to do, and that we because we had a purpose. Yeah. And when we accomplished what we set out to do, we said, "Okay, that's it." It you can. We 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 changed the marketplace. So for 12 years, you ran your yeah. business. So yeah. And and how were you able to get these books published, given the nature of the publishing industry? Yes, we um, we. As I said, we did different. We got our books commissioned. So I knew Peacekeeping Day was being launched in Canada. So I went to National Defense and said, you know, we have a story called Sea Out of Somalia about a peacekeeper in Somalia. It was an amazing story um, written by, uh, I'm not quite sure how old he was at that time. He could have been anywhere. Well, he was in the between 10 and, and 14, that age group. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful story. And so we brought it to them and they're like, wow, this is just amazing. And um, so they said, yeah, we want to produce this book in English and French and distribute it to all the schools across Canada on Peacekeeping Day. And uh, so I said to them, I said, is there a way for us to get the photos from the archives and put them in a book? And they said, yes. And I said, well, because it's his book, I think you need to take him to the archives and ask him to select the pictures for the book. So again, for me, it was all about this young person understanding that it's their story to mm -hmm. tell. Mm -hmm. And even the visuals were part of their story. So they did that. They brought him to the archive. He picked the story. So the whole story, the whole content of the story is something that he wrote and something that he chose the photos for. And he was there in Ottawa on Peacekeeping Day, and it was part of what... Um, you know, that was a big moment, I guess, for us, because I think there were like 90,000 books published. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So we did large projects like that. That's That was my focus. It wasn't, you know, 5,000 books is a bestseller, and I thought a little bigger than that. I thought I'm not going to just do small numbers of books. I want to do meaningful books that will create impact. Absolutely. Go big. Yeah. So that's, that's what we did, and um, so it was a lot of, uh, you know, the, lar the larger projects take more time. Mm -hmm. uh, we also did have, uh, O'Clellan Stewart was our trade publisher, trade distributor. Okay. So anything that went into the bookstores or anywhere, they managed that. And um, Nielsen was our textbook dis distributor. So even though we came up with the content and all that kind of stuff, I was very much not interested in owning a printing house. Right. I was not interested in that. Um, so we would outsource designers if we were not um, using them. We'd go through the whole process using outsourced. Right. So it was really partnering. Yeah. yeah. Bringing yeah. around the partners that yeah. you needed to make this successful. Yeah. And then uh, then we thought we'd, 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 it was a point where we thought we needed distributors. And that was a much smarter way for us to do it. Now that's common practice. I mean, at the time, it wasn't common practice. There's a I lot of things that you were doing yeah. that weren't common. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, think smarter and different. I didn't have to own stuff. Like, you know, you know, yeah. you know a lot of people go into business because they want to own this or own that. I wanted to, I guess, create stuff. It, you know, it's a different perspective. And I just thought, you know, when you outsource, you get great talent. Right. Get, it's not know, about owning. It's about creating value. That's yeah. what you were doing. And what was so brilliant, again, um, giving, giving the kids their voice and giving kids a chance to speak to each other in their own voice. We always, so in a professional environment, we're both 
both women. And I'm sure we've all been at the table where we where a man has repeated what we said. I think the term now is mansplaining. Um, and when somebody else takes your idea and puts it in and owns it on, takes ownership of it, it devalues who we are as people. And nowadays, the conversation about diversity and inclusion is, is front and center. But same thing with the advertising industry. People need to see representative examples of them talking to them. And here you were some, what is it, 30 years ago now? Yeah, a while ago. A while ago. <laughs> helping getting kids a, a voice to speak to other kids. And this is just so forward thinking that um, it's, it's really incredible to see what you created. Oh, thank you. you. You mentioned during this process that at one point your two partners decided to, to pull out. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was? Cause this is clearly a monumental lift. You're, you're, you're not, you're, you're charting new, new territory really what the three of you did when did when did they decide to take go on a different road and what well, happened think, for you there i think it was um i think it was really difficult charting new territory so you know as they as they put it they said listen you're the visionary in this process and um they just found it tough they found the industry tough the industry was not receptive to us, to an industry that was changing, like to what we were introducing. Mm -hmm. I mean, now they're very receptive to it, but at the time they were like, you're just coming in here messing up what we already got planned here. Yeah. And um, that was pretty evident. So- um, Did they try them, to take you down? Did they try, was it aggressive competitiveness that they, that you I, faced or was it just blocking, blocking, blocking? Look at it this way. So if you have adults writing stories for young people and they have they own the entire market, then what happens when now you have a whole other niche moving into that market? It's uh, it's threatening, mm. and I understood that. Um, so I would just say that I, I wouldn't call it blocking, but I don't think they were receptive to the change because I don't think necessarily they were ready. Like something as simple as trying to get a grant from Canada Council, um, their answer to me was young people are not professional writers, so we don't give them grants. Hmm. And I said, well, how do you know? You've never had any. And now they give them grants. I mean, but it's like all of those things, when you're changing how people think, you have to challenge what is right, in order to change that. So I think uh, for my other partners, um, they weren't driven the same way I was. I mean, wonderful people. Um, one went on to, to teach, which is, um, she is a teacher as well as an amazing administrator. Um, and the person who did production went on, you know, to exec an executive position because she was an executive. I'm very happy with what they did. And, and they were just like, you know, Lucy, just go and do this. Right. You can do it. So they were very supportive. It's not that they weren't. But I felt like a complete failure because I thought I should be keeping everybody together here. I should be leading this team. I should this should this should not happen. Um, but it's interesting because it also it's it's, it's interesting because when they left I felt unfettered. Like I could then try other things. Okay. I could think differently. I could. I had to be much more resourceful. I was like, oh my. I was like, oh my god. I really don't want to be the the administrator in this. Although I was a very good administrator, I knew how much work that was. So um, I outsourced that for a period of time. Right. Um, so it's just like finding the right people, trying to do who could think the way I was thinking, because I had two people who did think the way I was thinking. So that also. That also was difficult. Um, but so, I think, I, you know, moving in any industry, and I think now when things are disruptive, it's all, you get kind of excited. I get excited that there's so much disruption. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. I do want, I, I want to see more of it. And I, and, and uh, I just hope that people will, you know, take the risks they need to take in order to do uh, what they need to do and, yeah. and enjoy the disruption when they're doing it. And people, I think, are embracing it more now. 
and it's moving so quickly, I think this is a wonderful time to be in business and to be a disruptor. So I think that's what I was yes. in slow motion. I, was, I, I don't know if it was slow motion. I was a disruptor who also felt like a failure at the time, but my family was very supportive. They're like, no, you can do this. My friends were very supportive. They were supportive, but I felt like I was on an island. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think I think even in today in the quiet of the night, the disruptors out there do have moments where they feel that they're on the high seas um, on their own. When you went from having this team and feeling like you had responsibility to keep the team together to finding that you're manning the ship on your own and um, being able to recognize the positives that it that it could bring that you, you could become more resourceful and, and, um, and really steer it in whatever direction you felt compelled to do. So can you go through what that journey looked like from the time when you felt like a failure to realizing that this is your new reality and here, what I'm wondering if you could explore for, for all of us is this notion that when you want to go from point A to point B, there's there's reality that superimposes itself on us and we can either use that to say oh well i can't or there's resistance to pursuing but the disruptors in the world find a way i think it starts with accepting the new reality i'm very good at that i just i'm very good at looking at something and saying that's what this is and then i have to deal with it and then I think so it's almost like you have to accept it first thing. You have mm. to acknowledge this is what's going on. What does that look like? Um, and then you have to look at the value of the situation. You know, what are the good things? What are not the good things? What can you uh, leverage? What can't you leverage? Um, so I think after I got over my emotional uh you know, reaction to all of this. Which is also yeah. really natural, a part of the process. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's like they talk about the five steps of, of grief. Yeah. And I often look at those five steps and I'm like, I can apply that to like so many yeah. other situations exactly. in life. I think that's a very good word for it. It was grief. Because uh, actually that whole idea of doing it together, that was like, it was like gone. You have that emotional bond yeah. to your partners. So, yeah. um, so I thought, okay, well, all right, Lucy, this is, let's press the reset button. And what does this look like? What kind of, where are your strengths? What can you capitalize on? Can you think differently? Can you change the business model? Can you um, find other corporate sponsors? Can you, so we did a lot of those things. We had a lot of corporate sponsors. I have to tell you for a for-profit company, because we were a purpose-driven company, right. much like what you see now, social entrepreneurs, I guess you might call them now. Um, we would go in and state our case and invariably people would support us. Canada Post was a big proponent. They would buy the trophies. They so it's almost as though years. every, like maybe, maybe I'm being a little um, exaggerated. Everybody except the publishing industry, nobody else can say no to you, right? <laughs> Think about it. The value, but, but the value that you're yeah. putting in front of them to be a part of, to let kids develop their creative spirit, to write books for other kids, to get that experience, who can say no to that? Yeah, well, I was really happy with the support we got. Okay. So uh, so I did look for other corporate sponsors. That's right. what I did. I thought, I'm just going to go outside the box. And people were saying, oh, no, they only, you know, support not-for-profit. I'm like, no, there are social results and social impacts here that have an ROI that are valuable. Right. So if we're distributing... Um, forms throughout the entire school system and associations and organizations and libraries across the country and that has your logo on it and you're endorsing this kind of program that has enormous value did that kind of sponsorship happen with banks and say canada post or other large enterprises back in the day now we see it all the time on nhl in canada or whatever teams everybody's sponsored but was it as common back then um I mean, I'm sure it was there, but you really had to make make a good case, mm. and it had to it had to be. I think it had to be pure. Do you know what I mean? If they were going to do it, um, it had to be. You had to be able to draw a line from their investment to the purity of the outcome. Mm. 
Yeah, I understand because it's their brand that's at stake. Yes. And so they could, and plus it was children. Yes. You know, on top of everything else. Right. And so we had to do a lot of, you know, legal work around um, working with children. Because that wasn't, uh, people would avoid that. Right. So, and the responsibility the guardians had or parents. Um, So we we said, okay, well, we still need to do that. Um, And that was just becoming a thing. I think also in the entertainment industry, you know, as younger people were starting to be in um, sitcoms or whatever. So Mm -hmm. there was a whole, you know, I think it ended up becoming somewhat of a movement at some point where a laws around protecting young people who are working, uh, which I was really happy about. Um, so, so you yeah, became more so resourceful. I did. I'm much more resourceful. I just thought about all kinds of things I never thought of before, and probably wouldn't have thought of. And I think this, like, if you're changing an industry or you're leading an industry, you have to be the person who's actually doing that. And leading really requires pushing boundaries, thinking about things. But all, you know, it's like you have to have an anchor. You have to know what it is at all times. You have to know what it is you're trying to achieve and never deviate from that. Like, like you have to have an anchor inside you and you have to have an anchor with every conversation you have that it's always aligned. As soon as you move away from what you're aligned with, you know, you're compromising your success or your outcome. So I, I'm very good at being anchored in what I want to achieve. And when someone offers something that isn't aligned with that, even if it sounds like a fantastic idea, I, I can really see that the outcome is not going to be what, what I think is for that particular business, let's say, or that particular line of business. Is there a process that you go through? Is it, in, is it intuitive? What does that look like when you're either accepting or declining something that either aligns or doesn't align, looks great, but maybe isn't the right sponsor, or maybe their intent isn't aligned with what you want to do? Perhaps it's a, an outsourced service provider. How do you, how do you figure that out? I think I always operated on a a win-win environment. You know, it's something that people talk about now. I thought there has to be a win for them. There has to be a win for me. There has to be a win for the young people. There has to be, um, I can't be exploited because if I'm exploited, then the children are exploited. That's how I always viewed it. Um, So there were lots of people that offering all kinds of things that I didn't think were appropriate at the time. Even people you know, who wanted to buy the business that we had for the wrong reasons. Um, I thought, okay, I can't sell this to you because you're just going to exploit everybody. And that would be on me, right? So I, I think I think when someone asks me, I go through, people can do SWOT analysis. I sort of do something similar in my mind from beginning to end, and I see the outcomes. I'm very outcome-oriented. You know, I start with the outcome. What is this actually going to look like when it's done? Mm-hmm. And we're like reverse engineered in my mind and then engineered again um, until I can see the holes. And if I'm comfortable or if I even think I can adjust it, it's, a, you know, I've negotiated things where what people asked for are not what they actually ended up getting. Where I said, okay, well, that's a great idea, but think about this this might even be more beneficial to you and to me. So um, I think I became a very good negotiator at that time. I just thought everything that I need, I'm just going to stay focused on it and I'm going to negotiate. And so as you entered into the different propositions that came your way, whether it's people or opportunities, it sounds like you use that exploration of understanding, well, who is it in front of me? Why are they here? What's their why? At a, yes. at a almost at a foundational sense, what's their what's their why? What are they trying to achieve? And by getting to know that person just through conversation and looking at the give and take, is that one of the ways that you were able to discern what's real and what is aligned and what's not aligned? Um, I'd say that's a good description, but I think I always looked for gaps. Because a lot of people, when they're running an organization, see things a very consistent way. Yes. And they're not necessarily seeing there is another way. And to get what it is that they need to get, a much more creative way. So I, I would always start with their why. What do they need from me? Mm. 
what, how can I be helpful to them? Mm -hmm. And how can they be helpful to me? Mm -hmm. And how can we both benefit from this? And sometimes if they're doing the same thing all the time, they don't see that the world is changing every day. And there are other things that they could benefit from that they haven't seen. So I always saw it as my job to figure that out. So looking for the gaps, I, I think that's really interesting. Um, because it allows you to bring a perspective to the conversation that can be of value to them. I think also when we're looking for gaps or things that don't fit, it can also point us to areas where we might want to look a little deeper. So it made me think as we're talking here about when people are doing negotiation or they're in a tight conversation, negotiating or there's a stakes or for example, even, um, people who play poker, for instance, they're looking for that change, something that changed, there was a pattern, and now there's a change, or there's a pattern, and now there's that gap, something that's missing there that you that one can sometimes see. And I think that that's a really interesting perspective when we're interacting with organizations or people, what value can we bring? What gap are they not seeing? What are their blind spots? And then also when we're looking at characters and people, seeing where there's also a gap. Because otherwise, they're obviously going to be presenting what they think is great and wonderful. And, you know, it, we, we can't always take that at, at face value. We want to go deeper into who is this person, what is the organization. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I, just as a person, I embrace change. I think change is healthy, um, whether we're driving change or subject to change. So I love that we're living in an environment that's in constant change, although we always have been. Now people, uh, you know, we're, I had this conversation yesterday with someone and they were talking about change and they were saying when, you know, when you're in an organization and everybody's trying to do change management mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, part of what I do is change realization. Um, when it's when you're forced let's just use the word force when you're forced to change because an office has to close or something like that it feels like it's imposed on you mm. like you you have no say like it's just my life is changing and you've made the change like there's people to blame and all that kind of stuff but when you embrace change or you live understanding that change is constant you are, you look at things around you differently mm. and your expectations of things are different. You might not even have any expectations because it could change. Um, but I think it's much healthier to embrace change. And, you know, I know you and I had this conversation about fairness, like what is fair, right? You know, and I, um, you know, if you accept the premise that many things are not fair, the world is not fair, the world's not fair. And, you know, if we try to run around making everything fair, how, how difficult is that? But if mm. we accept that certain things aren't fair and how do we work with that? How do we manage that? How do we um, adjust that and make the best of that? Um, it's amazing how differently we'll think. Yes, and often too, when there is change, there are gaps and opportunities where now all of a sudden taking it from a glass half empty, we can look at it as a glass half full that when there is change, it can lead to new adventures and new opportunities rather than where we take ownership. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, we each, every individual has ownership of their life and how they choose to move through their life, make choices, respond. There's an old equation I remember someone taught me where there's an event, then you have your reaction, and then there's the outcome. Well, we can't control all the events in our lives. What we can control is our reaction to those. Mm -hmm. And that invariably is where the magic happens because that is going to either spur the outcome to be positive or negative for us. And I loved your example of trying to drive change in a world that where the reality is where it is and still figuring out, all right, this is, I'm going to accept that this is how the world is, but that doesn't mean that I can't chart and disrupt and navigate from point A to point B. I have to think exactly. the same thing too about suffering mm -hmm. because invariably in life, there's suffering. 
something's going to happen and at the end of it, you know, our health will fail us or those that we love, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's hardship. Mm-hmm. And again, if we accept that, then we can choose how to respond to that. But I want to get back to the work that you're doing with change realization, because I think that that is incredible work. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're doing there. Well, my business partner in what's called change driver, um, was a negotiator and uh, chief of staff for the military, amongst many other things. And um, he came up with what I think is an amazing process for change realization. Not cha- I, I would not say it's change management because you're not managing the change. You're actually driving the change in, uh, in an environment that you acknowledge and accept is constant change. So if you are uh, in the modern economy, if you're running any company, um, you know, it's moved from large companies that have a life cycle of maybe 50 years and many longer, Mm -hmm. but usually 50 years. So now that's moved down to like 15 years. And a lot of it comes down to being able to be change ready for whatever's going on. So this uh, program of change realization starts, and it's a certification program. It starts with understanding their principles of change. Because if you understand these principles, um, then you understand the backbone of change. And that's fall, that, and what that also gives you is also a framework that you can work with. And then some tactical how to do that and how to work within any organization. But the premise is that if you change one thing, you're changing everything. Mm-hmm. You can't change things in isolation. And you have to understand what's connected to what and the integrity of an organization. And if you understand the integrity of an organization, then you also understand how to drive an outcome in that organization. So it's outcome-based, results, impacts, benefits, outcomes, and you have to know, and and it's very consistent with how I think as well. Um, So this is why we need very good partners in that. So um, no matter what it is that you want to achieve, you have to be able to state what that looks like. And I can say, having been through this course, (laughs) that it it truly is incredible. Um, And what I love about it, and you just described it, but what underpins everything in our world, whether it's organizations or in home, are the people, right? One of yes. my, one of my um, dear mentors has always told me, Karen, problems are easy to solve. We have put men on the, room, on the moon. We have cured illnesses that used to take the lives of children 100 years ago. It's the people. If we can learn how to navigate and nurture change and the human relationships that are involved, then we actually have a chance of being principled based and coming out of the other side with integrity to realize the change for the benefit while not having collateral damage of humans along the way, which I think the program, which I know the program that you're um, doing through Change Driver is, is focused on. And, and it also focuses on doing the real work as well so that humans are providing other humans with the right information in order to make decisions, which I think is brilliant. Yes, well, thank you. That's, that's a very good description because it really came from the understanding is that it's people that drive change and you need a system and a structure that helps them drive it in an ethical and highly uh, effective way. And Everybody needs to be thinking about that when they're dealing with people. Yes. Change. And, and that's one thread that I've heard throughout our conversation is, is being able to be very principled based, really understanding why we're trying to drive something and aligning principles, aligning values with partners, with organizations, with sponsors, even aligning it with the creators so that they're, they're at the center of the entire ecosystem of what you're building. And at the same time with those partners who maybe you're disrupting, helping them to see the change in the, in their marketplace so that they can actually participate. And you did mention some publishers that were became distributors to you and the like, mm-hmm. who were they're able to, to realize that there's something of true enduring value that you're trying to do here. And, mm-hmm. and as they say, creating it in such a way that, 
they were able to see the value of partnering in a new world with you so that the change is less scary and they don't see it happening to them, but they're able to open into new opportunities and, and do the right thing at the end. Sure. Yeah. Amazing. Lucy, I, I'm going to bring us to a close and I want to really honor and acknowledge you for opening up and sharing how you nurtured your allies and how you navigated invariably some of the adversaries that we meet along the way in your journey to creating the business. I know that in this podcast, we haven't touched on so many other things that you're involved with, including your, you know, going deeper into your coaching practice. It sounds like we might need to have a round two in this. But I want to just also ask you, because we're going to be putting some show notes at the bottom, can you tell listeners where they can find you? Well, you can find me on the executive committee, which is Tech Canada. So I'm a chair, one of uh, over 70 chairs across Canada, and it's a global organization. And um, our goal is to have uh, high integrity, high ethical leaders leading businesses across Canada and around the world. Um, my email address is there and my uh, telephone number should be there as well. Or you can just call reception and they'll put you in touch with me. Not a problem. We're going to definitely um, put the URL that will point you directly to Lucy LaGrasa. And, and so folks out there, um, by building relationships with one another, we can merge our jet streams and do magical things together. And when you find your fuel is beginning to run out and your journey may be nearing its end, I guarantee you, you will discover blessings more beautiful than you can ever imagine. We would love to know what you think of this podcast. So please let us know what you think by rating, sharing, reviewing, subscribing, and following us. All the links are below. Be well, my friend, and go build up one another.